0: The role of a, a terrorist is to use all their means possible to disrupt, destroy and break the morale. In 2001 we was we was away on a desert exercise and then we, we same as everyone else, we, we finished our day's training and we put on the telly, had a brew. And we watched the Twin Towers getting dropped, you know. And then all of a sudden, the shit hits the proverbial fan yeah. and um, and there we are, you know, we're in the middle of a war on terror.
1: Matt Helio has lived a definition of eventful life. As a paratrooper, he toured in Northern Ireland and the heights of the Troubles, before going through SAS selection and eventually find himself in the heart of the war on terror. He's been in the SAS for 16 years, been on so many tours hunting bin Laden, Saddam Hussein and facing the IRA. He now has his own private security company where he looks after high profile clients and we cover it all. If you like what we're doing, hit the subscribe button. And if you want to catch me on Instagram, you can get me at Dodge Woodall. Here he is, the man himself, Mr. Matt Hellier. Matt, welcome to the show, mate. Hey, Dodge, you right, mate? Very good, very good. Looking forward to this one. Last time we saw each other, we were actually on a boat going to the Isle of Wight for a couple of beers, weren't we?
0: That's right.
1: <laughs> As always. As always. Um, let's get cracking. Let's roll all
0: the way back. Where did you grow up and how did you get into the army? Um, I was one of those kids that never really grew up, mate. So um, I grew up in just on the edge of South London, sort of London Borough of Merton, really. But uh, it's, it's Surrey, so a place called Mitcham. Um, it was famous back in the day for the fairgrounds. So it used to be London's fairground. Yeah. So I grew up there as a young young kid on a council estate, uh, playing with action men, you know, watching the war movies. <laughs> and, and that's where it all started, and it hasn't really finished. You no. know? I never grew up.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: And what was Mitchum like back in the day? Because it was a tough place. Yeah, I mean, all of South London back then was yeah. a tough place. A great place to grow up, a great community spirit on the estates. Um, but yeah, tough place. You know, there was a lot of poverty, yeah, um, all over South London. So uh, you know, you had to, you had to, you had to scrape a living. Um, yeah. you know, try and earn a few quid, whichever way you could. Yeah, absolutely.
1: Where, what what inspired you? And what age were you thinking? Right, you know what? I've got two routes to go down here. Yeah. I could go down a naughty route, I would imagine, or I could go down the army route. What what, what year was that when you were? Th- what age were you when you were thinking? Right, well, I've got a couple of routes here
0: yeah i mean i alluded to the the fact i mean i never really grew up i always wanted to join the army right. you know and it, and it was the the sort of civilian world that was pulling me in a different direction my direction was always focused always wanted to join the military yeah. always i didn't know what regiment at an early a, a young age and uh, until the falklands really kicked off and then we were you know 1982 i think we were sort of 12 years old thrown into you know this media splash of yeah. War bullets and uh, and blokes running around in, in military kit, kit and that really um, cemented my 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 love for for soldiering and what I wanted to do and and it was from that point on when I see two powers splashed all over the news taking goose green um, goose green was that goose green in the Falklands 1982 so uh, one of the big uh, the first big battles where where you know 600 men from the parachute regiment. Uh, took out or, or overcome 1,500 Argentinians. Is that right? So it was a famous battle, but, uh, you know, that was that was a, one of our big victory and we lost one of our classic heroes, Colonel H. Jones, who won a Victoria Cross in that battle, leading from the front. And that really, you know, that, that sort of gave me the boys' own spark and uh, that really cemented it and that that was me i was going to be a paratrooper from the age of 12 you know wow, um, wow. and everything around it you know all, all growing up it was it was trying to keep on that focus you know we were getting dragged into into usual stuff criminality you know trying to uh, trying to nick a few quid yeah. bunking off school doing bits and bobs that we shouldn't have done yeah and really trying to avoid uh, the courts yeah. just to make sure that i could do what i wanted to do yeah And what age did you uh, go into the army? So I went in uh, at 16 originally. And uh, so I'd done my selection Uh, as a young junior para. That was what I wanted to be. And uh, unfortunately, I didn't get through, not because I'd found they didn't push the button. So I missed the intake for the junior para and then went straight on. I had to go back down to Sutton Coalfield. And do uh, all the pre-selection again, and then I joined as a as a junior soldier, a young soldier at seventeen. So I went to depot, parrot in order shop, and then was abruptly booted out after about two or three weeks because I still had an outstanding sentence. So, you know, my civilian life overtook my military life at that point. It was something that I was trying not to not to do, but I sort of faked it. I had a, a two year um, uh, suspended sentence for a, a crime a violent disorder crime which was basically getting drunk running around rolling around with people in the streets and 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 bloody smashing up earth uh, things yeah. something you do something you regret as yeah. a youth but something that's on your record for life yeah so i joined the army thinking i i, I wouldn't have to disclose that and a few weeks later they found out and give me they were very kind they give me an ad, admin discharge and i had to slip back into civilian civilian life and served the remainder of my sentence, so it was a good, good kick up the rear for me to yeah. uh, to make sure I keep my nose clean. Yeah. You know?
1: And what was that feeling like when they found out? Because obviously you were dreaming about being in the army since the age of twelve. What was that feeling like for you?
0: Absolutely gutted. Yeah. 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 I mean, that's all I wanted to do. I was there. I was wearing the army, you know, uniform. I was, I was full on, and and then all of a sudden, you know, to get that ripped away from you yeah. is is gut wrenching. But um, I mean, I found a bit of uh, solitude in the reserve in the TA. So, although the British Army, you know, the, the regular army, is all all, swing, uh, all singing and all dancing, administration was good. Yeah. The TA at the time, I could, I, although I couldn't join the regular army because of, I had a suspended sentence, yeah. I could get into the TA, and that's what I'd done. So, uh, grabbed my brother, who was a who was a punk rocker at the time, and we went down to to Mitcham Road Barracks in Croydon, and we joined a, a unit called Tempara, which was a TA unit. So, I had literally eighteen months in Tempara. Yeah. Done the, the done the uh the pre-selection, the p company and all that, done my jumps. And uh, tell me tell tell me what the next steps were after that. When did
1: you first go on tour? How old were you when on tour? They call it tour. Mm. You yeah. know, it sounds it sounds all nice when you've gone tour I'm thinking like rugby tour, a nice tour with the boys and whatever. Actually tour in the army is going to Afghanistan and Iraq and yeah. all these mad places.
0: Yeah, that's right. So I finished six months um training. Uh, with the paras, Um I was fortunate enough, you know, I got a champion recruit, so I could choose which battalion I, I could go to. And there's only one person in each platoon can do that, and I was fortunate enough to do that. And I went to the third battalion, the parachute regiment, which was serving in Northern Ireland at the time. We had a two-year tour in Palace Barrack. So, uh,
1: so you had two years in Northern Ireland.
0: Two, well, I had many years in Northern Ireland, but that was my first, my first stint. So finished in Aldershot. Had a couple of weeks leave, you know, done the Ibiza thing with all the boys, got smashed and, uh, you know, and then, and then had a rude awakening when yep. we are on the plane flying over to Northern Ireland and straight into battalion. And then, you know, after induction period, straight on the streets of West Belfast. Wow.
1: As a 21-year-old on the streets of no, West yeah, Belfast?
0: Well, you know, 20, 19 19, So what were you actually doing on the streets? So our, our mission was to support the IUC and support the British government. What's you know? the RUC? So the Royal Ulster Constabulary. So that's the police force. It's now okay. called the PSNI, Police Service of Northern Ireland. So that was the whole military's uh, mission, is to support the police, to ensure that the province, you know, Ulster Northern Ireland, uh, can, can, can work, uh, you know, can strategically carry on a day-to-day business, earn money, make sure people can put, you know, live their lives yeah. so, and we were there to protect the community and support the police ah, from um, the IRA from the IRA there was a number of yeah there was a number of terrorist organizations not just the IRA we had uh, you know in we had all these pyra you have the real IRA we had back then there was every every there were so many organizations you know every different estate uh, had a different organization that you had to belong to you know, um, and, and most of our enemy were were, were fighting for uh, a unified island. Wow! Um, but you know, don't forget we 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 come from South London, right? Yeah. Most of our mates were Irish. Most, yeah. A lot of our mates. There's were a lot Irish of Irish South yeah, Absolutely. So it, it was a bit weird, really. You know, initially, you know, because you know our boozers were down in Tooley yeah. Broadway, Or right. and Groom, you know, run by the Irish families. We had never had a problem with any yeah. Irish, and and then all of a sudden we're thrown on the streets of, of Ulster and and they become our enemy as such you know? hell. and where
1: where were you living when you're out there
0: we We live, we live on barracks and yeah. then, and then you where well, you deploy on emergency deployments into certain areas, so you know one of our areas of deployment then was a was a place called Woodburn uh which is right in uh, west belfast you know right in the, right in the heart of what what's going on you know there's Twinbrook estates you've got pole glass estates there's bombings there's shootings going on every day you know and uh, andersonstown if you remember back in the day where the two young corporals were uh, were d- accidentally drove into a funeral um and and they were dragged out of the cars and shot and beaten that was our area that was our neck of the woods you know so we're after you know, we were up against some serious people in
1: the mm. day you know mm. and how hostile is it for you you're on the very, street very hostile. it was you know as a
0: paratrooper you know the the ira and the irish republican community hated the paratroopers because there was a historical bloody sunday going on from 1972 where it was alleged that paratroopers killed 13 innocent civilians you know but I mean that's a court case unto itself. The paratroopers will tell you straight that each each person you know was was an armed terrorist at the age you know. But it's contentious, and it, you know I wasn't there, so I can't comment. But so paratroopers were hated in the province, and to tell you the truth, paratroopers hated the Republicans. Yeah. So it, you know the, the the it was mutual. You know it was a you know it was a it was man's own place. And know. and could you spot a mile off the I R A. No, you couldn't. No, you couldn't, no, okay. No, no. they're dressed as civilians. Yeah. They're terrorist organisations, so they're not they're not in uniform, you know, they, they plant bombs uh, that no one sees, you you know, under under vehicle IEDs, you know, explosive devices, um, you know, they're they're killing people indiscriminately. Um so it's not then you know, the, the the role of a terrorist isn't isn't to stand up and fight against a British soldier. The role of a, a terrorist is to use all their means possible to disrupt destroy and break the morale of wow. the british you know and and there was bombs pressure pads you know i was in involved in a number of incidents incidents through the years where friends of mine were losing limbs uh, and getting shot and getting blown up and you know we're in the thick of it you know so uh, okay. if you could see the enemy it's fine no yeah. one wants to you know face up to a platoon of paratroopers because yeah. there's only going to be one result they're going to lose yeah
1: know? so they can see you, but you can't see them. Basically, yeah.
0: Yeah. Bloody so hell. you've got to use all your means possible. You know, you know, you never walked on you know, all the all the basic stuff that we, we were all taught, you never walk on tracks, you never use vulnerable points, you don't open gates. So you walk you walk in the in the in the worst areas, you know. You never walk through a gate, we go over the hedge, through the hedge. We carry ladders on patrol, you know. Any vulnerable point like you would normally use, like, yeah, you know, a gate, a fence. Yeah you know, a crossroads, we avoid. Because they're they're obvious choke points. And if you walk into a choke point, you know, you could expect a pressure pad, a bomb, or a shooting. You know, you're going to be under attack. Bloody hell.
1: What are the rules, Matt, out there? Obviously, you're protecting your own life. You're protecting your mate's lives. What are the rules of you being able to open fire on someone out there?
0: Um, I, I mean, you almost said it. You, you're, you know... If you, if you feel that your life or the life or safety of one of your comrades okay, is at risk, then you can use reasonable force to stop that. And if reasonable force would equate to if someone is, is about to detonate a bomb and you're about to die, then of course you could shoot. Yeah. Number one, you give a warning. No matter who we shot or what happened, we give a warning. Stop army or a fire. If They carry on then you you have to use reasonable force, but it could be you know it could be a a, a writer with a petrol bomb, yeah, okay, you don't necessarily need to shoot him you We had rubber guns, you know yeah. if he didn't if he didn't you know rubber bullets, yeah. so we have guns that fire rubber bullets, so the guy didn't if he was lighting the petrol bomb and he carried on lighting him now that petrol bomb could without a doubt kill you all right and i I've got friends that have lost limbs and died through through petrol through burning. So you could use that, but you know, in a court of law, you've got to argue that that it was reasonable of yeah. course, You know, and if you've got a, a rubber bullet gun, yeah, and you use your 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 you know your your normal rifle to kill him, there is a question there. Well, why didn't you shoot him with a rubber bullet? Why didn't you? You know. So have you got
1: have you got two rifles on you, or have you got a pocket full of rubber bullets and a pocket full of?
0: Some sometimes, yeah. So we used to have a, a couple of uh, rubber bullet guns slung across your yeah your back, you know. So we wouldn't automatically revert to shooting people with live rounds. Yeah. So in a right situation, you know, there's young kids, there's women, yeah. there's people that are just, uh, you know, they're, they're fighting for their cause, right? Uh, they don't deserve to be shot straight away, you know? <laughs> you know straight away. Yeah. I don't mean that in a, yeah. in a, in a, in a rude way. Yeah. So, you know, you're trying to disperse the crowd. You're yeah. using everything. We're putting the shields up. We're using water cannons. If people carried on, firing petrol bombs, around rocks, yeah. injuring people, you know, then we would use rubber bullets to disperse or identify the the uh, the perpetrators. You know, the ringleaders, and we would take them out using a rubber bullet, yeah. and then they would be dragged into the cordon that we would set up, yeah. and then they would be arrested. And what would a rubber bullet do? It would take you off your feet. It uh, would. Yeah, yeah, without a doubt. Okay. Uh, you know, I mean, there has been instances where rubber bullets have been fired too close. So a uh, normal safety distance of a rubber bullet would be about 15, 20 metres. You know, right. anything after that, um, you know, anything closer than that, I mean, you are risking sort of life and limb. But you've got to, you know, you've, you, you know, you, you've got to take that, you've got to think about it. You know, if that guy's a risk of your life, yeah. you're going to shoot him anyway. Yeah. You know, you're going to save your life and the life yeah. of your comrades, all the civilians around you. Did you
1: find, having a couple of years out there, being around the Irish, did that make you angry when you come back to South London, knowing that South London's full of Irish, loads of Irish boozers, and this and that? How did that make you feel when you come back to to, to London?
0: The first tour was fine, right? It was a, it was eye opening. It, it was a great fun. You know, we did have we lost three guys when I was there. You know, in an in an IED, but but because I wasn't very close to it, it didn't really affect me too much. Yeah. You know, the second tour. So we come back from Belfast in '91. And then we launched back into East Tyrone in '92, and one of my patrol members, uh, a young guy who joined the battalion within six weeks, he, he uh, we found a uh, we found a, a mortar that was used to kill uh, police police soldiers. So we put in a cordon so around that to make sure that you know no one could get in. Yeah, uh, we needed to clear that mortar, and when we were putting that cordon in, one of my patrol members. Um, a famous guy now, a guy called Alistair Hodgson, stepped on a pressure pad. He was ten meters away from me, and he lost both legs. And uh, and wow. and it was my my you know my duty. Um, I was one of the you know I was a young parachute, but I was a trained medic as well. Uh, and then you know I managed to get to him quick and and apply tourniquets to what what was then uh, two stumps. So his legs, one of his legs was missing, the other one was mangled and. And, uh, you know, and I don't know what, you know, Alistair doesn't like listening to this sort of stuff. But, but uh, you know, Alistair now, after losing legs, he was about to die. Um, he survived. He uh, he He's now a champion, free fall. Is he? Free fall. So he's in the British British GB, British GB team, free fall, you know. Wow. Uh, instructor. So, wow. Uh, uh, wow, wow, wow. So that's your second tour? And that you was were... my second tour, yeah. In that instance, you know, I come back from that tour and, yeah, I mean, I had um, without a doubt, I had issues yeah. on that, you know. And uh, and the first thing I do when I when I come back, when I come back from that tour in '92, was uh, phone up my brother, get around the house, you know. We're going on a we're on a beating mission. Yeah. So, uh Dress Union Jack shorts, parachute regiment tops. Follow me, and we walked into one of the local Irish pubs, and the bouncer at the door, who sort of knew us from old, says, "Mate, you guys are brave." yeah we had nothing to lose we walked in there and we had a fighting withdrawal from that pub, you know Uh, but we i had to vent the anger (laughs) you know and we fought all the way up to it in ice street you know we had cars against us everything, and uh, and then we were eventually lifted by the old bill by the police who uh, who weren't sympathetic to our cause um, took us down the station we spent a night in the station with a caution uh, and let us out but you know, they could understand the, yeah. the anger behind yeah, it. You I'll know, bet. I was venting this anger. I needed to vent, get this out on someone. Wow. Uh, so uh, we We sort of provoked it, but yeah, yeah, yeah. people in, in that pub wanted a. you know, didn't respect the parachute regiment yeah. and the Union jack yeah. You know, so, uh, so it ended in, in a good roll around. Yeah, mate.
1: So this was 97. Yeah. You then came back to England. Yeah. And then where were you, where was your next tour? So
0: I, I then... Um, Applied for SAS selection, so uh, so I went on SAS selection and left the battalion in ninety eight, uh, and then sp- spent six months um, on on SAS selection, uh, and then and then passed SAS selection. I failed the first time; um, I had an injury and, and uh, which which uh, affected my fitness. And so, first times always a recce. Yeah, you know, come off on the hills, brush myself off, dust myself down. Get fit, straight back on the next course, and then really? past it. And, uh, and you know,
1: so just break that down in your mind. You're a paratrooper. That's like the Premier League. To beat SAS, that's like the Champions League, right? Yeah. And what what inspired you to get to go into the
0: SAS? It, it's something. I mean, when I joined as a young paratrooper, you know, joined the army. You heard about the SS. Yeah. You didn't really know too much because we had the Iranian embassy siege when, you know, it was beamed all across uh, all across the TV in '98 yeah. when I was 10 years old. Yeah. But it it seemed so far away, and after spending a number of years in in the parachute regiment and speaking to some people that had passed before me, um, I realised it is achievable and it was something that I could do and it was a different different you know it's. You know, a lot of seventy percent of paratroopers are in the SAS, or seventy percent of the SAS are paratroopers. Yeah. You know, when yeah. I joined, okay. So, uh, so it was almost like a stepping stone. Yeah. You know, it didn't. It, uh, you know, and I mean, you know, it wouldn't bother me if I stayed in the parachute regiment for the, for the the whole of my career. You know, mm. I'd love to have done that, but at that time, I wanted to change. I wanted to try myself, test myself. Yeah. So I went on SAS selection and passed. Uh, and then I spent the remainder, you know, 15, 16 years in the SAS for the, the final few years of my career, you know. Wow, 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 yeah, wow. Well, well, well. well. Just on the
1: SAS, SAS selection at six months, give me, give me an idea of what you had to do.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's completely different, you know. It's uh, it's all about self-discipline, right? You know, we say that as young rogues, but you need self-discipline. You know, no one's pushing you, no one's asking you, no one's telling you, shouting at you, you know. You get up in the morning, you got you got your first month of uh you've got you've got to prove your fitness right you've yeah. got to prove that you can carry heavy loads over high mountains for long distances mm. right that is just that is like your your um entry yeah. visa yeah you know everyone thinks it's the hardest part of selection well it's not that is your entry visa to get in and and prove that you're you're actually capable of completing the remainder of the training so we spend a month in the brecon beacons and elam valley and it's a rude awakening trust in Wales. Me. In Wales, mm. you know, no matter how fit you are, yeah. you know that course is designed to 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 hurt you. You've got to be robust. You've got to be fit. You've got to be prepared. Everyone's carrying an injury by the end of the course, and you've got to have that mental endurance to carry it on, mm. like sportsmen. You know, you got you got you got to play every Saturday, right? Yeah. When you guys were playing, yeah. you know, you're gonna have a niggling injury, right? Mm. You've got to your mind over matter. Mm. You've got to push through.
1: And how many people were on this when you were doing it?
0: We started off. Um, we would normally start off be- between about 150 and 200 uh, people, and it's such a blur, honestly. You know, because there's hundred, there's 200 people that start the course, right? Around 200 people started my course. There's a few paratroopers, you know, and uh, and after the after the, uh, you know, after the first four weeks of, of running over the hills and you know. Matt reading night navexes, day navexes. You start off in groups and then you whittle down. Then it's an individual test, yeah. right? And you find you finish off with a, a sixty-kilometer tab over the highest points of the and Beacons, right? You go point to point. Yeah. Um, and that's at the end of the most arduous week that you will ever have physically in your life. Yeah. Um, and then you you whittle down. I think we probably took about fifty to the jungle. The jungle. So you go from you go from the Brecon Beacons. Whoever passes that you end up with a, a car pass, um and a, and your name at the gate in Hereford, which was the old Sterling lines in Hereford, um just on the outskirts of town. Um so you finish endurance. Um on the let me think this, on the Friday morning, yeah. you pack up your kit, you drive down to Hereford and you sign in, and you 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 start you start then you start your, your training and
1: so so that bit there the bit that you've passed in at brecon beacons yep. are they saying now that 250 passed and yep. then now those 50 now you're going to the jungle
0: now that that 50 now you're on the course really, really? Yeah. now you're on the course that's you know everyone says oh i've done the hills done this yeah it's nothing you know when you're in the ss you realize that is just that is just your precursor to start the course wow um, so and, and where, wh- what jungle you're at and what did you have go to go to Brunei so um, it's written you know it's all over the book so we spent two weeks in Hereford preparing getting kit issued you know um, putting in patrols get your, your, your DS and then uh, after two weeks you get on a plane you fly out to Brunei um, and you spend six weeks out in, out in Brunei and what's that like um, yeah. hot hot <laughs> humidity you know hard work so you spend you spend about a week a week or so you know just just getting acclimatized so you're doing beach runs getting thrashed yeah uh, you know you, th- you think the the fitness stops it always carries on in, in the sas on selection so you get thrashed up and down the beach run uh you're in the bowl each day doing doing life firing the bowl in it's a bowl in brunei it's a range okay that, that That is called like a bowl because it is, you know, it's similar. Mm-hmm. It's almost like 360 arcs. Yeah. So you're training, you're doing all your live firing to make sure you're safe with the weapon. Yeah. You're familiar with the weapons that you are issued. And we're now, we've dumped the um, SA 80s that the British Army get given. Yeah. And now we're on four man patrols with M16s, radios that work. You know, to me it was it was an absolute dream. I loved it. You know, I literally <laughs> quality. Loved it. You know, to me that was where I wanted to be. You know, so uh, you know everyone else was whinging. Not everyone. You know, there was people like me, of course. You know, there was a there was a huge amount of people that were there. They were whinging. They didn't like it. There was you know to me it was brilliant. I loved it. So uh, so we, you know you get thrashed for a, for a week or so in the bowl doing your range, making sure you're safe. You have still got the fitness, and then we probably lost we probably lost ten people there. Without even getting into the jungle.
1: what? So you, they went out to Brunei. You and they, out to could, Brunei. they couldn't handle it. So you're down all and The
0: Just the initial, just the, you know, acclimatisation phase. Yeah. You know, your beach run. So you're getting thrashed a couple of times a day to keep you fit, you know, um, see so yeah, how good you are. And then after your initial week or so doing that, you get then helicoptered into the jungle, dropped into the jungle, and you're in the jungle for a month nonstop kipping in the jungle you're in jungle in you're a under, tent you're under canopy not in a tent no in hammocks so you're in hammocks uh, with ponchos uh, and and you're getting taught everything you need to know um, to survive in a jungle environment which you know if you speak to any soldiers you know the jungle you need your kit your administration needs to be good and that's why the sas use the jungle right if you if you If you fail to clean your weapon, your weapon gets rusty within 24 hours, within 12 hours, and it won't work. So you've got to be on top of your kit. You've got to be on top of yourself. You're constantly wet. You're constantly soaking wet because you're sweating. You're going through rivers. The humidity is, uh, you know, whatever it is, 90%. Um, Crutch rock, trench foot, you know, everything bites in the jungle, right? You know, you don't touch trees. You know, you'll have sap on trees that will burn you. You'll have prickly stuff. So, uh, you know, you're, you're self-disciplined. You must be absolutely 100%. and You must hone into the jungle, you know. Wow. And who's
1: teaching you this stuff then? So if you're there going, you know, this is new to you, South London boy straight into Brunei jungle. Mm-hmm. Who's teaching you this stuff? So
0: they're, they're our SAS instructors. So guys yeah. that have been in the SAS three to five years before yeah. us. We've done a number of jungle trips, and they get selected to be um, uh, directing staff or DS. Yeah. So these are experienced SES soldiers, um, and, and they're our they're our directors, yeah. so they're our DS. And they spend a two year, you know, they used to spend like a two year attachment to training wing. Hmm. And training wing run all of the courses, you know, run all of the selection.
1: Okay. So, so you've left you've left the jungle, you left Wales, nailed that, you left the jungle, nailed that.
0: Then what? Um so then you go into resistance to interrogation phase, RTI, where you are you are taught certain skills to survive, you know, you snaring, um, how to build shelters, your, how to make fire, you know, how to live off the land, basically. Um, and then you go through certain briefs, you know, if you are captured. Um, conduct after capture, it, it was called back in the day. Okay. It's slightly different now. So... Um, you know, and it's in all the books. There's no there's no secret about it nowadays, yeah. you know. People yeah. have written written all this all over the place. Yeah. So uh, so we're taught how to, if you're captured by the enemy, how to conduct yourself, how to survive, really, you know, because there's no point in being captured by the enemy and being shot. You know, your aim is to survive, yeah, not to be killed, you know. But, you know, obviously not to divulge um, information. And You've got to make that decision, you know. Um, so you're taught that sort of stuff, and then all of a sudden, uh, you're 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 kicked out. You're you're on a four tonner in the middle of nowhere, you know, in somewhere that's inhospitable. You know, we've done it in in mid Wales, wet, cold. You know, not not the jungle anymore. Now yeah. we're in Wales where it's raining. We're in great coats, so you, you're dressed up as first world war guys. You haven't got you haven't got any day sack. You haven't got these tents. You got those sleeping bags. You know, you're on the run for a couple of weeks. You're on the run, and you have a hunter full. So, you know, this is uh, so you have. meant like we had the Gurkhas that were after us. Yeah. So we had a you know a company of Gurkhas that were chasing. By then, by the time we finished the jungle, we're down to less probably eighteen soldiers now that wow. were left on this course out of out of two hundred. Wow! Uh, and now we've got eighteen SAS soldiers, SAS and SBS soldiers that are on the run right in know, wales in wales so we've learned how to, you know survive we've learned how to, you know make fire catch animals hunt build shelters out of nothing and now we've got to put it to practice yeah uh, you know and these two weeks is is there it's going to run you down you know you're not sitting in front of your tv room with a hot brew you know you're drinking out of rivers you're scavenging through bins you're moving at night you're cold you're wet and you're doing this for a couple of weeks and then at the end of the couple of weeks, you go to a final IV, and all of a sudden you get a bunch of Gurkhas jump all over you, um, and, and it's all organ- going you know—it's—it's organised that you can't really escape. You yeah. Know? So a couple of—you know—you turn up to a, you, you'll probably face about 20 Gurkhas, and you get a good kick in. You get bound, you get gagged, you get thrown in a vehicle, and then you start your interrogation phase. My God,
1: and what's the interrogation phase like?
0: Um, yeah, depending on what you um depending what what your persona is so you, mm. it's a very um very organized and and uh scientific process it's in, you know you don't just get beaten around yeah. and, and ask these questions yeah. they study you so they understand who you are um all of this come back from really in the korean war when we you know you know the way uh, the chinese and the, you know the chinese really treated our prisoners um, you know, and it and it is so. It's now scientifically moved on. It's moved on even further now. So they look at you. You know, if you're a big, big hard bloke. Yeah. You know that most of us was. Yeah. There's no point in putting a big hard bloke against him. You know. Yeah. You can you can whip them down. You can scare them. You can you know you're you're you know you you're bound. You're blindfolded. You're in the dark. You're cold. You're wet. Your body's broken down. So you're naturally now yeah. shaking, and they will break you down constantly. So you know you have. I had, I think, about 11, 10 or 11 different interrogations. I'm, I'm moving on to yeah, 2001 yeah. right now yeah. with the Twin Towers. That's right.
1: Where so. were you in the Twin Towers and what did you what did you have to do as soon as you heard that the uh, yeah, planes yeah. had gone straight in?
0: You know, interesting. After after selection, we, we went on and we fought in Bosnia. So we went and opera, straight away into operations in Bosnia. We fought in Sierra Leone in Africa, you know, um, you know in 2000. So, and then in the in two thousand and one we was we was away in the desert on a on a on a desert exercise and um and then we we same as everyone else. We we finished our day's training and we put on the telly had a brew and we watched the Twin Towers getting dropped, you know? And then, you know and then and then you know that atmosphere changed, you know? Life changed. You know, we were used to in and out doing small operations, you know, in, in undisclosed countries. You know, or doing stuff that you've seen on the news—the big Sierra Leone job, the, yeah. you know, the Bosnia stuff, the indicted people—that was our job. You know, we, you know, we we were part of all, everything like that. And then, and then, yeah, and then all of a sudden, you know, the shit hits the proverbial fan, yeah. and um, and there we are. You know, we're in the middle of a a, a war, and uh, you know, the war on terror.
1: Do you remember that moment when the atmosphere completely changed?
0: Yeah, yeah, sure. It, it was literally that day. As soon as it went down, things started getting more serious, you know. And it, it didn't take us long. So within two weeks, we were we were deployed into Afghanistan. So Afghanistan was something we all knew. Yeah. We never really thought we'd be fighting in the place. It was a Russian, you know. We remember the Mujahideen fighting the Russians and the the chaos the Russians went through. Yeah. All of a sudden, we're thrown in the middle of it, and we'd seen the Taliban you know, committing atrocities, atrocities through that country and now two weeks later we're in Afghanistan and we're hunting we're hunting these you know, we're hunting Osama bin Laden yeah he was one of our main targets and we nearly caught him uh, we are hunting you know, we are we are we are in, in the fight we are battling
1: wow uh, go back go back a couple of seconds there you nearly caught him tell me that story
0: well, it, I mean you know it, a little bit of hearsay, but we had uh, we we had deployed on on, on an OP observation post, uh, and we were looking at a certain area that that, that we knew it was an area of interest. Um, as as it transpired, it was a it was an underground mine, um, and they believed that Osama was in that location. So we had got in there within twenty four hours, set up an observation post. Um, And then we moved the squadron in to clear the mines, to clear the underground bunkers and stuff like that. And it transpired that some of the people that that we'd caught and spoke to um, had then divulged that he'd left just before we'd arrived. Wow. So, uh, you know, the war could have been finished, you know, within weeks. Wow. uh, I mean, he was a very, obviously, intelligent, sharp cookie with lots of contacts all over the place. Yeah. Um, but I find that
1: amazing how you've jumped straight in, straight to the source, found out where he is immediately, and you're in. How many men were How many men were you operating with at that time?
0: That's uh, you know, there's a couple of squadrons there, so each squadron is around sixty people. So
1: like, sixty in each one, is it? Yeah, yeah,
0: around that.
1: Yeah, and they're all like brothers to you. Yeah, yeah. What What was the movements for you after two thousand one? Was the main aim to get hold of Bin Laden?
0: Um, yeah, it was really, I mean it was part part of that and you know, after we, we went straight into a a, a huge battle, um, Kawi Malik where we, we had a few people injured. I think we killed eighty eighty um foreign fighters and Taliban. Um and uh, and then, you know, that was out within within like forty eight hours. No, within about 3, no, 72 hours of being in country. So we went straight into this battle and that was our main battle. Um and then the Taliban withdrew into Pakistan. Um, you know, the terrorists now morphed back into civilian clothes and become civilians again. Oh, and then and then it was fairly, you know, it was fairly Afghanistan was fairly quiet and fairly controlled for the next four or five years really, you know. So we bounced back a number of times, you know.
1: Bounced back coming back to England. Into
0: Af- yeah, come come back to England. Yeah. So we went in there sort of a couple of weeks after September the eleventh and then we were back for Christmas. And then we were back out in january um you know back out in in afghanistan in january and then and then we were in and out um in and out of that country for a number of years mm, you know? mm. i had an I, you know after that i i spent another couple of years over in over in ireland over in northern ireland you know I went back to you wanted that buzz again, didn't you? We needed that. Yeah, well, you know. It is the army, you get yeah. to where you go. But yeah. no, it was a great, great fun. So I sort of stepped back and went went back over to Ireland for a couple of years mm. working undercover um against the, the terrorist organisation. And what
1: year was that? That was two
0: thousand and three. So that was still going on all that time. Yeah, is it? yeah. Yeah. So that that went on and then and then we had the Iraq, you know, second Gulf War. You know uh which we you know as soon as i, I finished you know, I we my squadron deployed straight, you know, I went back to the squadron after a couple of years, and i in, in uh finished you know two thousand and two to two thousand and four yeah and then uh and then went straight back into Iraq, where that become our focus now, you know, so now we're looking for Saddam and the bath party, you know The who that? saddam and who saddam and and all his old uh you know cronies and yeah. such you know the bath party yeah. who were uh, who were the who were the the Sunni regime that that had been, uh, you know, had turned Iraq into although Iraq was a stable and secular government, you know, it, uh, you know Saddam, obviously, you know, we went into that for a reason, you know. Yeah. Uh, weapons of mass destruction, you know, there's another contentious issue, but of course we know Saddam used that against the Kurds. He used it against his own people, um, and 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 you know um so that was our main aim we went into iraq to to find these people you know um, and again that was that became a focal point for all international terrorists. you know yeah. so it was afghanistan and iraq so now we're bouncing in between both countries wow so well my life was not, you know each year i'd spend 9 months a year away on operations for the first four years for the, those looking the for
1: saddam or looking for bin laden
0: looking you know and there's there's people that are you know uh the terrorists you know the, the people that are causing these countries to be unstable, so our role in um our role in iraq is uh, is well documented in in a book called t f black um and we were you know you know we were there to to ensure that that Iraq could function as a as a as a country mm. you know they could function as a country, so we were there to stop the car bomb and stop the terrorists. Um, you know, stop the atrocities going on that was carried on. You know, Baghdad was an absolute war zone at that was time. It? You know, it was car bombs. You know, I don't know, tens, twenty car bombs going off. There were hundreds of people getting killed each day. Um, so you're constantly seeing people getting killed, getting wounded, getting blown up, and getting shot. Um, you know, on some tours were busier than others. And uh, you know, but you, you you're in that mindset. Yeah, you, know? you are You're. You know. You're. you're, you're you know, at that time, you're a hunter. You know, our mission is to, you know, detain and destroy.
1: Yeah. And what's that feeling like for you when you've got someone in front of you and going, shot, shot him dead? Is it just a, we did a job, that's it, I'm going to shoot him, shoot him. It was the right thing to do at that right time. Yeah,
0: yeah, of course. I mean, you know, the intelligence that he's put in front of you, uh, you know, these days we have uh, great intelligence, you know. It's not, you know, it's not Second World War stuff now. We have inter- all the intelligence that is available to all of us, all the technological stuff, all of the, you know, the everything that's going on, we we have access to that, so uh, so we know who's what they've been up to, you know, uh, and and again, all of the rules of engagement, you know, we follow set rules of engagement, so it's not it's not willy nilly, we don't yeah. just jump in, you know, through a building and, and shoot the nearest bloke, you know, or, or lady, you know, we know what these people are up to, and our legal team brief us on the rules of engagement on each operation that you go. Mm-hmm. And some days we were doing three operations a day. So, uh, you know, and there were there were deaths going on, there were terrorists being killed, there were our guys getting killed on that, you know, and that went on for, for six to nine months a year.
1: What's that feeling like before you're going into an operation like that? You know, right, the powers that be above you has gone, Matty and your team, this is what we want doing, the green light, go
0: get them it's uh, it's it's like getting into a boxing ring, right, you know, or doing any sport, yeah. you've got, you have the nerves, and if you haven't got nerves, something's wrong with you, you know, the nerves what keeps you alive, you know, puts your, puts all your senses in, uh, you know, on 100%, and uh, you have the nerves, once you climb into the ring, once you're in, into the battle, into the forum, you know, your training takes over, you know, you enjoy it, unfortunately, you know, so you enjoy what you do, you put in what you've trained, and what, you know, yeah. to practice, and you're there for a reason, you're there to, to, to detain, mm. or, or, you know, these people that are killing innocent individuals. Yeah. And that's why we were there, you know. Mm. And how have you seen
1: terrorism sort of take it to another level in the UK since bin Laden?
0: I mean, it certainly has, you know, it's gone up. You know, we had, I mean, we're, we're quite, you know, the British people are, you know, we have a resolve, don't we? We're quite resilient, I think is the word, you know, we've seen it. We live through the Blitz, you know. You get through the Blitz. We have the colonial wars going on, yeah. and then we have the IRA blowing up Harrods, London. You yeah. name it. You know, we have the Iranian embassy siege and stuff like that. Yeah. So we're quite resilient. We're yeah. quite used to terrorism on our streets, um, but it has taken another level. You know, now it's that it's not it's not terrorists coming from outside in. It's you know homegrown terrorism. Yeah. You know, and these and these are not organised as such, you know. So organised terrorist organisations, we can we can sort of counter to a certain extent, yeah. you know. We use all our intelligence, but it's the lone the lone wolf, the the bloke that wakes up who's disgruntled by, you know, he's seen something gone there, you know. He he's, he you know relates to his religious denomination, and then he will he will react, you know. And everything that's on our shelves these days. You know, a yeah. vehicle, as we've seen, can be used as as a terrorist weapon, as 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 effective as a gun. Yeah, you know. Um, so we've seen it on London Bridge. We, have seen it on yeah, London Bridge. You yeah, know? you know. So that's what we've got. That that's the big picture now. That's what we've got to counter.
1: That's like the hidden thing again, isn't
0: it? Well, yeah, yeah. Mm. Well,
1: how how for you being one of the top men in the SAS and Huge respect from everyone I speak to about you. In that, what happens at that point when a terror, a terror, a terrorist attack happens? Do the SAS get triggered straight away? Get in here now.
0: Yeah, more or less. Yeah, yeah. You know, you know, the the police, uh, the armed response police units are always on on the scene, and, and we've seen it splashed all over the TV. Yeah, right. So they are an effective force. Um, but when they need reinforcements, when it becomes um, slightly more serious, when we're talking about um, dirty weapons, you know, weapons of mass destruction, um, chemical weapons, stuff like that, or when it becomes a when it becomes a a terrorist attack that the police need support, yeah. then that's when you know it takes a lot really for the government to give the tick in the box for United Kingdom Special Forces to 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 be operational on the streets of this country. Right. You know, that isn't that isn't a, a snap decision. You know, that is a well-thought-over decision. But these decisions need, need to be made, you know, mm. and they need to be calculated, but they mm. need to be made fast. Mm. You know, London Bridge, you've seen the helicopter yeah. on the news. You know, we all know that was a military helicopter landing on there. and We know that there was military people, allegedly SAS and SBS guys, that were hunting down any further actions that went on. In, in, in borough market and yeah. stuff like that yeah, yeah, so, yeah, yeah. so yeah. we are re- you know the, the, the special forces will react to, to terrorist incidents in this country on some of your tours how's that this 25
1: year career I'm fascinated man yeah. this 25 year career how's that been for your mindset when you had to leave the army the SAS the paras how was your mindset after all those years and then having to go right to civilian life
0: I mean the mindset. The mindset's you know, my mindset really is. when you, ca- I carry guilt for what the military don't provide for the veterans who do get out, you know. And like you know, you alluded to earlier, you know, the SAS were the top of the game without yeah. doubt. You don't get paid a lot of money, right? When you get out, your pension is meager. Give, me, give me, give me an example. Oh no, I mean, you'll you you'll be lucky if you if you're getting twelve hundred quid a month pension wow right? after serving after 20, all that after doing after 25, serving years. 25 years right so you had your pension is not enough that's the sas so you think about these young riflemen these young paratroopers these young signalers these young drivers you know artillerymen you name it all of these people have put their life on the risk for a lot less than what we did yeah and we had the best intelligence obviously we're in the in the forefront of it every night yeah so we had you know and every day these young kids you know and it broke my heart really when i got out and see you know when i had cancer and i'm like right you know what where's the you know my spin on things was where's the support Support where does the military support me i've just been diagnosed with cancer and do you know what um what my sort of family's officer come back with who was meant to be supporting us he said matt you're out of the army in two months he said you're going straight on the nhs and if I could have got out of that bed, I would have got out and run his fucking neck. Yeah. And uh, my wife was there, and she was upset and crying. And uh, and you know, it sort of breaks heart. I, uh, it didn't you know? I'm like same as us all. You know. Yeah. So, you know, we we've got you got to overcome this, yeah. right? And so, but my vision was, well, if it's happening to me as a sergeant major in the SE, what, yeah. what about these young yeah. corporals? Yeah. And then when you delve into it, you know, they are struggling. They haven't got a pension. You know, if you didn't serve twenty two years, minimum twenty two, then get a bloody pension. Is that what the rule is? is that what the rule yeah. is twenty two years, you get a pension minimum. Yeah, So you got to serve twenty two years to get a pension. Now the pension things have changed slightly. You know, for the worse, never for the better. Mm. Um, so my pension was, you know, our pension back in the day. We signed a contract, F B seventy four, and that contract said that after twenty two years, we were entitled to a pension, right? Which was equivalent to our last two years of pay in the army. Yeah. You know? But now they don't get a pension. They don't see a pension till they're fifty-five. Mm. You know, so these young soldiers are out on the, you know, out on the streets, out in the war zones. They don't see any pension. You know, they've got to get out of the military, and then they got, to, then they got to find a new career.
1: Yeah, which you is know, difficult. Which is bloody difficult. Yeah, mate. yeah. yeah, yeah so. What sort of wedge would they be on going into the army? What sort of money would they oh, be, oh be on a year? Gosh. To, think, you know, the youngsters going straight in at 18s, 19s, twenties.
0: I think you know when I joined, we were on probably five, 600 quid a month, if mm. that, if mm. that, you know. Uh, now they're probably, I, I, I be, I mean, you can have a look at the pay scales. Yeah. I would be surprised if they're breaking a £1,000 a month, some wow. of the young kids, still, you know. Yeah. So it's a low-paid job, you yeah. know. Yeah. But, you know, you are, the, the military is there, it supports you when you're in the military, yeah. right. You have a roof over your head, you yeah. get three really good meals yeah. a day or you used to get good meals a yeah. day. Right, you got gym, you got all of this. So yeah. there are so many, so many good benefits. You do travel the world. Yeah. Obviously, a lot of the places you're traveling, you're going to be fine. Yeah. Um, but you do travel. You're going to get some good qualifications. Mm. So for anyone thinking about joining the army, right, you don't think about the money. You think about the benefits that you can get out of the yeah. military, and it's up to you to make the most of the military. Yeah. Know? And if you don't, you're you you're a fool. You know, mm. you need to get in there, get every single driving license you can. You know, you could become as a young Tom, young private soldier. You could find yourself six years later flying a helicopter. You know, so there there is some opportunities yeah. in the military, and it does open it all up. Mm. You know, there are some career structure stuff that you never see in civilian street. Yeah. So, but it's when you get out. You know, you must always join the military and always keep one foot on the outside. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, if you don't, you know, you're you're going to be struggling.
1: Yeah. And tell me about PTSD. Yeah, it's, it's everywhere at the moment. Everyone's talking about PTSD. How affected are people who have gone into war zones? Who have come out of war zones? Yeah, th- from what you've seen.
0: So when I left the army, I, I sort of got involved with charitable work. Yeah, and I'm now the CEO of an amputee charity called the Pilgrim Bandits.
1: The Pilgrim Bandits. The Pilgrim, Bandits. Pilgrim Bandits.
0: Yeah. yeah. So, um, and it was set up. Uh, in in the name of uh, of the old founder who who lost his son and he wanted to help uh, injured veterans. Um, and then I was an ambassador. I became an ambassador, and then I moved through and become the CEO for this charity now. And I've been the CEO for about three years, two and a half three years now. Um, and we see a lot of, a lot of the individuals with PTSD. And you know, I speak some of our we have like a medical faculty which are doctors. That, I've, that I met back in the day when I was training, doing all my medicine. Um, and now the, these guys are consultants, professors. So we have a medical faculty, and we all believe now that that PTSD is is broadly, too broadly distributed, right? Post-traumatic stress disorder, right? It comes depressed, depression, and then PTSD.
1: Yeah. Like there's three. Okay. I mean, we know that... Depressed... Depression, then PTSD. Yeah, PTSD. Okay, so you have got to work out which We're, one you f- you reckon you're in the category.
0: Yeah, I mean, we, okay. we, you know, you get up. Everyone goes through through at least a couple of these. Well, yeah. I'm depressed every Friday when I have to pay people. Yeah. Right? <laughs> you know, I've been through <laughs> bloody depression. You know, yeah. when you know, we've all gone through depression, you go into that dark place. That's so not necessarily PTSD. Yeah, and then we have PTSD, post traumatic stress disorder, and that is a, a um, an, an illness or a, or a you know an illness that that really um you are incapable of doing anything anyone with ptsd okay and you see real ptsd and i say that in a spectrum because it should, it should be broken down into so many different mm. categories mm. that this people is you know they are suffering from anxiety they can't get out of bed they want to kill themselves they want to harm themselves they have guilt trips you know they can't function yeah. on normality yeah. and to try and you know to try and treat that is is hard and complex these are complex cases that need to be broken down even further you know my I see as PTSD. Um, is that you know the army you know and we sort of ring fence it around the army and say the army and now the police and NHS are now looking at PTSD and stuff like that. well that's it's too broad for me you know w- the army and the military recruit from 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 areas of of poverty right yeah. so you know we we come from South London right we grew up in the council and stuff. I'm not saying that I had a, a poverty you know I had a you know we had a great yeah. childhood and um, but some of the areas like in Glasgow. In Middlesbrough, yeah. in Wales, you know, yeah. down in the Gurnos Estate, the where they've got nothing and they are struggling each day, okay? A lot of these kids go through abuse, yeah. physical, mental abuse yeah. as children, all right? They join the military. The military gives you friends, it gives you money, gives you three meals a day, gives you warmth, yeah. gives you a being, a purpose. Yeah. When you leave that, so you're your All your problems as a kid right, can be dissolved or yeah. disappear. Yeah. So when you leave the military, guess what happens? You're back and you haven't got the support, you haven't got the family, you haven't got this. Right? So all of those problems that you face as a young child are back again. Are back again. Yeah. And that's when they research. And then, you know, as adults now, drink drugs, you know, drinking drugs never help. Any anyone with any anxiety, any depression, any of these mental health problems, right? They only Make things worse. Yeah. So that's my, you know, my You know, not again. It's a huge subject, and I'm not qualified. Yeah. No, I can only speak about my own yeah. experiences and what I've seen. Um, and this is an ongoing, an ongoing problem. How do we treat this? You know, but we we do the basic things, don't we? We make sure stability. You you have stability in life. No yeah. point in getting a job, right? If you haven't got a house, you haven't got no stability in yeah. your life. If you if you're jacking up, or you're on the on the you know, down the pub for ten pints of Guinness each night. You ain't going to get up in the morning yeah. and do a an HGV job, right? Because yeah. you're incapable. Yeah. So you've got to get this. Give them stability. Give them warmth. Give them support. Put a roof over the head, mm. right? You know, give them give them support network, and then we look at right now. We can start. You can start earning yeah. your own money. Yeah. And if you earn your own money, you know, you're going to be self-supporting. You're going to yeah. feel that pride in yourself again. Yeah. Okay, and so it's a long process, yeah. but foundations, you know support support and then work
1: so way. this is from 2015 you've now left the sas yeah. yep <coughs> your next move was right i need to earn a pound note yeah
0: what was that for you so i i took over the i took over the security company yeah so i i security took over a called... security company back in the day it was called hr security yeah right so uh so we had a security company selling armored cars doing stuff in yeah. iraq and and all over the world that was called amoeba strange name yeah but that's what it was called. yeah and then the, the, it then morphed into HR security, where we provided manpower, um, close protection, security um, to a, lot of, a lot, of, lot of high net worth individuals and, and people. And then we, um, then my role was so I nurtured that, and we we had a maritime wing, so we had a land based and a maritime wing. So we had a maritime security company where we would put boots on boats, arm arm people on boats, and secure against anti piracy. Is that right? Um, and then I sold that company or that part of the company in um, all of it, really, in around 2016. Okay, So we nurtured that, built it up, and then sold it. So then,
1: you were you were putting you were putting you said uh, putting soldiers on boats was that to stop the Somalian pirates and yeah. just just explain that because I don't I, I saw it on the
0: news and the press and stuff. What actually was happening? So um, back in I'm trying to think what year? Early 2000s. The 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 history around uh, pi- you know piracy has been around as long as mankind, yeah. right? And uh, but but the recent surge of piracy was it, a, a security company was um, asked to provide a maritime coast guard for Somalia yeah. for Somali now, for Somalia uh, back in the early two thousands. They provided the training, armed the individuals. And they would they would keep the fisheries, you know, keep yeah. keep the waters free from fisheries. The government didn't pay these individuals. Yeah. So all of a sudden they had weapons, they had boats, and then rather than um get paid by the government, they would intercept fishing vessels and, and give them, you know, Give them money extortion, yeah, uh, to allow them to fish in that area, right? And then that just grew and grew and grew. Okay. And then these guys with guns and boats, you know, become a great business in Somalia. So these were Somalians. These are Somalians. Yeah. These are. This is all really, you know, know. Although it happens all over the world, yeah. you know the, the the you know the big upsurge in the early, you know early sort of two uh, late 2000, 2009, 10, yeah. 11, all that was now. Anti-piracy, you know, and we know, you know, we're, we're sat in pool now. Yeah. We know a couple of companies Absolutely. that are knocking around here, good friends of ours yeah. that have, have made an extremely successful business out of that, you know, anti-piracy companies.
1: Yeah. So they they then were like, right, if these pirates are extortion and, and robbing people, etc., then we're putting our men yep. on the boats yep. with guns to get rid of the pirates.
0: That's right. Initially it wasn't with guns, so a lot, a lot of the companies wouldn't allow um, their security guards to be armed, so they would get on the boat and they would try and to to defend that v- uh, vessel with barbed wire, with oil drums, with really? whatever they've got. And, you know, uh, have you done? Have you spoke to Phil Campion? Have you done a podcast with Phil? I yet? haven't. Phil's a, he's a good good mate of mine, mm. and Phil he's got a great book called uh, Born Fearless, and he's got a great story and was a was a was a good friend of mine in the S.S. But yeah. when Phil was a was a was a security guard on a boat. You know, he didn't have a weapon and he ended up throwing anything he can at these pirates. The pirates were scaling up the side of his boat. <laughs> he ended up throwing fridges at um, <laughs> barrels at um and he deterred them, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you know, very close. But but as it as it evolved, you know, the um, the companies like Shell, Oil yeah. and all these big companies, um Authorized weapons to be carried, but the you know the weapons were were all serial numbered, They were extremely well controlled. Yeah. Uh, and the ammunition was accounted for. You know there was no. You know it was a very controlled industry, and it still is. Yeah. Um, so that industry become you know part of what we evolve into. Mm. You know one of those companies, and and then I sold that that company. Mm.
1: So you were basically so like Shell would come to you and say, "I need ten men on that ship, that vessel," and you'll put your men out. Of, for example, I'm just guessing a you know, grand a day. Whatever it may be, yeah. Where were those men coming from? All ex-military. All ex-military.
0: All ex-military. So uh, there is a there is a there is a, a um. It's called the circuit. So ex-soldiers come onto the circuit and do like armed bodyguard or armed asset protection or security. You know, into that security world, and that's what uh, that's where they you know they they've got to do certain courses. Yeah. Um, you know, it costs them a lot yeah. to do courses. They can do it on their resettlement from leaving the military. Um, They've got to be trained in the weapons that they're using. Yeah, they've got to know the rules of engagement. They've got to know how to do. You know, so these these courses are like bodyguard courses yeah. for maritime. Yeah, Um so they're well trained individuals that protect huge amounts of money and vessels. Mm. Um, and is that
1: whole is that whole Somalian pirate thing? Put to bed now because know. they know that everyone's on the ships with with guns.
0: It, and it certainly, um, it certainly quelled it for a bit. You know, yeah. as soon as weapons come into play, the uh, the security industry on the anti piracy slowed down a bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or yeah. it slowed down a bit.
1: Yeah. Wow, Matt, this has been absolutely fascinating, mate. We could go on for hours. Literally fascinated. I really thank you for coming in and being so uh, honest and upfront because it's a whole new world to me. And you've certainly had an absolutely amazing eventful life and uh, I wish you all the best with your company moving forward which you're absolutely smashing at the moment and the CEO of that chari- of your charity um, and I appreciate for everything for today. Thank you Cheers, you're a good man.